You are now tuned. Talkline Network Radio, America's longest-running Jewish broadcast network, the voice of the Jewish community. Welcome to the podcast. You're listening to Talkline with Zev Brenner, America's premier Jewish broadcast on the air since 1981. And now your host. Welcome back to the program, Mom Zev Brenner. I believe it's been quite a while since we last had Neil M. Scher, who is a prominent American lawyer. Formerly, he headed the Office of Special Investigations for the Department of Justice, and he helped prosecute Nazi war criminals in America. He also helped investigate former United Nations Secretary General Kurt Waldheim. He received the Raoul Wallenberg Award for his efforts. He also was head of APAC from 1994 to 1996, executive director, and he was also a special advisor to Canada's War Crimes Prosecution Unit. He also was chief of staff of the International Commission on Holocaust Era Insurance Claims, and he's currently practicing law here in New York. Neil, welcome back to the program. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Zev. Good to be with you. Thank you. My question to you I know that the Department of Justice, I believe they still have the investigation of Nazi war criminals. I assume there's very little work for them to do today, or am I wrong? No, you're correct. My old office got blended into a larger office that investigates human rights violations and war crimes, you know, not related to World War II. And I think they have one or two cases that are still winding their way through the courts. But it's really the... It's been winding down for, for some time, yeah. Well, when you were there, I mean, you, there were a lot more war crimes. I guess, as I mentioned, Kurt Waldheim was probably the most famous of them that you helped investigate. Yeah, yeah I mean, we, we had hundreds of cases. Uh, Kurt Waldheim, of course, got a lot of publicity. Uh, in addition to bringing cases against uh, concentration camp guards and, and, and death camp guards, we brought them against uh, a lot of... Uh, Eastern Europeans, particularly from Latvia, Lithuania, Ukraine, who served hand-in-hand uh, -hand with, with the German troops and the SS uh, in annihilating the Jewish populations, you know, after Hitler invaded the Soviet Union in June of 1941, one of their high priorities was really identifying and, and destroying uh, the Jewish communities. And a lot of that, a major portion of that, was done uh, by the local population who were all too happy and willing to destroy their neighbors and take their property and uh, and the like. It was really a horrific uh, piece of history. That certainly was. And the irony is also, uh, here you are when you were head of the Nazi war criminals unit investigating war criminals, is that a lot of them were brought to the United States on the Operation Paperclip under the theory that they didn't want Russia to get them, but helped defeat communism. So a lot of the people you investigated were brought here on the dime of the United States government. That, that's correct. As you mentioned, it, it was called the, the Paperclip Project. And, and you should know, and, and, and your, your listeners should know, that we brought a very, very important case against someone who had, in fact, been brought here under Operation Paperclip. His name was Arthur Rudolph. He was a high-ranking Nazi engineer. He was the deputy to Werner von Braun, who was very well-known in this country. And they built the, the, the notorious V-2 vengeance uh, rockets that wreaked havoc. Uh, in London and elsewhere in England and in Belgium, 
and Hitler thought that was going to be his sort of uh, saving uh, weapon. And uh, we brought charges against this uh, Arthur Rudolph, who again came under paperclip. I, I saw his files, and the U.S. authorities and the Army whitewashed his files. They they put down uh, wrong material, wrong answers in order to to get him here. But we investigated him, and and we we knew and we were able to prove that in addition to building these rockets, which, which were devastating and killed many, many civilians, they were built by slave laborers from concentration camps in, in the mountains in eastern uh, Germany. They came from the Dora Middlebau concentration camp, where there were French prisoners, Jewish prisoners, uh, and it was horrific. They worked them to death. They hanged them, and uh, I interrogated... Uh, Rudolph several times out in California, in which he admitted that he he uh, got SS, the SS to send them slave laborers. They worked them to death under horrible conditions, and he ultimately uh, agreed to leave the U.S., making all sorts of damning admissions. Uh, so we didn't have to bring the case, and he he was deported uh, back to Germany, where he was from. He was a German citizen. Uh, and that was a very significant case, uh, and it exposed, uh, as you had mentioned, this this paperclip operation. And Werner von Braun, who later became quite the celebrity, he was on the Walt Disney Show, very handsome, uh, uh, charismatic figure. Uh, but I've got to tell you, uh, had he been alive when my office was created, uh, I would have investigated him. He died uh, several years before we were created. Uh, That's a you're shame. quite correct in, in highlighting that paperclip project. Now, let me ask you a question. I'm curious, as you were speaking, and Neil Scherr is with us, he investigated Nazi war criminals. Did any of the Nazi war criminals say, hey, why are you investigating me? You guys brought me in here. Well, uh, uh, Rudolph uh, didn't raise that. It was very interesting. Uh, he... He freely uh, agreed to our interrogation, which went on uh, on two separate occasions out in San Jose, California. Uh, he, he, neither he nor his lawyer, and he had a very competent lawyer uh, in from that you know from Silicon Valley. Never, never said, "Wait a minute, what are you going after me for? You brought me in." He, he never raised that. Uh, I think he was so. Uh, taken aback by the fact that we had discovered how he had abused and, and, and in effect, murdered these, uh, these uh, prisoners, so slave mm-hmm. laborers. Uh, that, that really took him by, uh, by surprise. He, he, he was very free, and he loved to discuss with us uh, how he built the rockets, you know, the scientific aspects uh, and, uh, in fact, that was a technique that I used to get him to sort of open up and relax. And in between his descriptions of how these rockets work, which I, which I surely did not understand, I would, I would ask him damning questions to which he made very significant admissions. It was a, a fascinating, uh, uh, interrogation. But he, he, neither he nor his lawyer raised uh, the, the point that you just, uh, 
Well, I, I want to know, did anybody raise that? Because to me, it would sound logical if you're looking to have a defense, one of the defense they can say, listen, you guys knew who I was, you brought yeah. me here, so why are you throwing me out or trying to throw me out? It, well, yeah, I mean, uh, no, his, his lawyer didn't raise it. I tell you who did raise it was that SOB Patrick Buchanan, uh, and he raised it while uh, the investigation, why after the investigation became public, after Rudolph already was was out of the country, you know, Pat Buchanan, who was a, still is a very conservative uh, uh, commentator, uh, who even his late colleague William F. Buckley labeled an anti-Semite, uh, he was uh, Ronald Reagan's for a period of time head of communications with an office in the West Wing. And from that office, he actually wrote uh, op-eds in the Washington Post attacking me and attacking my office. You know, he put a little uh, disclaimer saying it was his personal views and not, uh, you know, wasn't expressing the views of the government, which I found to be disingenuous. I don't know how he... How did he get away with that? Because today you couldn't get away with it. Uh... He couldn't. In fact, the World Jewish Congress at the time, Edgar Bronfman and his colleagues, uh, protested. But, you know, it was, uh, it was different uh, then. And he, uh, uh, you know, he just, he, and it wasn't just uh, uh, the fact that he defended uh, this rocket scientist. He defended all of these people. John Demyonik, like Ivan the Terrible, right? Uh, he no, was... He, he, he was horrible, and his true colors were exposed when they, he was fully supportive of the infamous Reagan visit to the Bitburg, Germany cemetery where SS men are buried. Uh, no, he he posed serious problems uh, for my office. There were there were political problems, and I spent a lot of time, an awful much too much of my time, uh, although I had to, in fighting the these. Uh, Anti-Semites. Terrible attacks, yes. I mean, it came from Eastern European immigrant groups. It came from the likes of Buchanan's and Robert Novak, uh, uh, who, uh, ironically, you know, was born Jewish and then converted to Catholicism. He routinely attacked uh, our office. Uh, you know, and we had to deal with that. And, you know, you got to remember, this was in the mid to late 80s when the Cold War uh, was still... Raging. Uh, raging, yeah. Before yeah. the wall came down. Now, you also got criticism. You had Tuffles. Tell us about yourself and Simon Weasel in the documentary. I've never forgotten you. You seem to be criticizing the famed Nazi hunter. What was that all well, about? Uh, yeah, the relationship with, with Wiesenthal was an interesting one. There was a time that we were very close. I would speak with him all the time. When he came to New York, I would visit him there, and we'd have dinner. In fact, I was an adjunct professor at Cornell. Uh, once a week, I flew there to teach a course on the Holocaust and, and the courts. Wiesenthal actually was a guest lecturer in my class. Uh, I, when I was in Vienna, I would uh, always visit him. Uh, and then the, the Waldheim case erupted. And uh, he was... Uh, very opposed to our investigation. He would say he didn't support Waldheim. 
he called Waldheim a liar, but he was publicly uh, giving uh, our investigation a difficult time. In fact, and I don't know what it was all about. Yeah, I was asking uh, why. I mean, well, I, there were people who speculated that there was a history of problems that he had with the World Jewish Congress. Uh, and at the time, when the Waldheim case was exploding during my investigation, uh, in, the, in the private arena, it was the World Jewish Congress under Bronfman that was leading the charge. Of course, they didn't have access to my information or my investigation, but they had public uh, research done, and they were exposing and attacking Waldheim <clears throat> all the time. Uh, and Waldheim, I think, because of problems going back maybe 30 years, I think was hostile to the World Jewish Congress. At least this is what's been speculated. Uh, also, he had an, uh, uh, an infamous battle with the former uh, premier of Austria, Bruno Kreisky, who was Jewish. And he and Wiesenthal had uh, really... Uh, nasty battles and and Kreisky was uh, in the uh, of the uh, opposing party political party that Kurt Waldheim so again some people thought that that might have entered into it uh-huh. uh, but the upshot was it deteriorated my relationship with uh, with Simon Wiesenthal to the point where he was sending me almost on a daily basis for a period of time faxes I'd arrive in my office in the morning and there'd be a fax from from him saying that on such and such a date, I sent you information against a certain person alleged to have been a war criminal. What happened? And he sent that to me and to, to my boss, the attorney general. And uh, he sent a whole slew of those, which uh, obviously I did not appreciate. Uh, I then had one of my uh, most senior investigators and historian go through every allegation that had been sent to us from Simon Wiesenthal. And the result was remarkable, and it turned out that no instance had any of information proved to be actionable, anything that could serve as a basis for a case. Sometimes he had the wrong person. Uh, Many times it was known that person was dead at the time he sent the allegation. Much of it was simply regurgitation of what the Soviets had publicly talked about. But I was very surprised that nothing he had sent us turned into anything. Why and was I wrote that? him back and told him. What that. do you think? Uh, what, was the, what was going on there, that he was giving you stuff that really was not really well, valid it, material? It, yeah, it was, it, it was very strange. I mean, I, I, I felt bad about it because, you know, despite the differences I had, and, and by the way, in the Waldheim case, it... it, it, it his perceived support for Waldheim impacted my investigation. When I would meet, as I did periodically, with the, the senior people in, in the Justice Department, the Attorney General, the Deputy Attorney General, uh, you know, who were not following the close details of what we, I had uncovered uh, uh, until I gave, uh, I, I, I submitted a very extensive report. But before that, one of the comments that always... Uh, was sent my way was, how come Wiesenthal uh, supports him? What about Wiesenthal? 
they were concerned about, you know, I guess the, the public image of someone. With well, he was the chief Nazi hunter, so if he says he's kosher, then why yeah, say he's I not mean, kosher, it, right? It was, I mean, we overcame it because my office prepared a, a report of well over 200 pages that detailed Wiesenthal's, uh, uh, all times, uh, war time behavior and, and eventually, the Attorney General Edward Meese and the Secretary of State George Schultz both uh, concurred in my conclusion, and he was, uh, you know, put on a watch list and barred from entering the U.S. And my understanding was that that sort of stunned uh, Simon Wiesenthal. Uh, but uh, you know, and that's what happened. And obviously, that that uh, had an effect on on our overall uh, relationship. Now, were there any Nazi war criminals that you pursued in the United States and didn't have any success in deporting? Well, there were uh, there were quite a few individuals against whom we won denaturalization cases, in other words, stripped them of citizenship, and then uh, got ultimate orders of deportation. And the problem there, and this is a, I'm glad you asked this. It's a fascinating and frankly, very irritating to me and disturbing piece of history. Uh, unless somebody held the citizenship of another country, uh, we could not simply deport them. We needed uh, permission of another country to take them. Now, there were many instances of uh, people who uh, formerly were German citizens or people who had served under the auspices of the Germans, particularly in Eastern European uh, countries, uh, you know, the Baltics, Ukraine, uh, Romania, Hungary, who were working hand-in-hand with the Nazi government and the Nazi war machine in, in, in effectuating the Holocaust. And uh, Germany simply would not take them back. They gave us an extraordinarily hard time, and they did so on the pretext that they could not prosecute them, uh, which I knew and I told them was a lot of nonsense. It was wrong. They, they completely uh, uh, submitted disingenuous uh, uh, arguments for not accepting back these criminals who they had created. Uh, and we showed them in chapter and verse while they could, that they could prosecute these people. There was no law preventing it. The laws allowed it. They simply did not want to do it. They did not have the political will. So what happened to these Nazi war criminals? They stayed. Well, a lot of them stayed here and died here. But that's were not they, the were end they of the story. Were they in prison or they were free? No, a lot of them were free. What was particularly galling, and this has not been written enough about. What was particularly galling was the role of our State Department during this period. We all know the problems in the 30s and the 40s where the State Department in the Roosevelt administration was blatantly anti-Semitic to the point where Henry Morgenthau, Roosevelt's Secretary of the Treasury, a hero who was fighting like crazy to, to get the administration to help Jews in Europe get them out. And he wrote memos to the president saying our State Department is full of anti-Semites who not only don't want to save Jews, they're going out of the way to keep Jews out. It was horrific. 
Now, the State Department, when I would, or my office would secure orders of deportation, uh, and Germany would say no, or other countries would say no, I would meet with State Department officials saying, you've got to put pressure on Germany to do the right thing. This is, these were the criminals acting in the name of the, the, the German state, in the name of the German people, and they should not be allowed to live freely here. The Germans ought to take them back. The Germans were, frankly, uh, offensive in their arguments. One uh, deputy ambassador told me to my face, why should we take back your garbage? Uh, huh. I was floored. To which I said, well, frankly, it's the garbage that you created, so you take them back. It was to no avail. But the problem was the State Department, they made pro forma requests of the German government and the Austrian government, where we had a big fight, and I can get into that in a moment. But the German government said no. Now, I would have expected that the U.S. government would put pressure on the Germans simply to do the right thing, but they didn't. They were concerned about German-American relations. Ambassadors to Germany, you know, they didn't want to, German, Germany was our ally. They didn't want to stir the pot. They didn't want to have to go to these cocktail parties and have awkward conversations, and they didn't. Wow. And so they allowed the Germans to give us the runaround. It was extraordinarily offensive. Uh, Shonda, it's and, embarrassing. Uh, Zev, you should know and your listeners should know, if our government uh, wanted to put pressure they could have done so. In fact, it wasn't until about three years ago that they finally put pressure on Germany and changed its tune and took back people to be deported. But they could have done it 25 years ago. But our State Department didn't have the guts, didn't have the political... Uh, uh, they, don't want, they don't want to. They don't have the political... They could have done it. They, 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 they could have and they should have. And, and they it's something which, if the it's Germans. only a few years ago that, that they finally changed it, it's something which I think majority of people are unaware of. That's right. They changed it. Um, uh, the State Department uh, the, uh, under Trump put pressure on, on Germany, and they changed it. We know how to put pressure on different uh, governments. In fact, I made a bunch of, while I was still in, in, in justice, I made a series of uh, suggestions that would have, uh, in my view, that would have made the Germans uh, ch uh, change their tune immediately. Uh, I'm, I, I prepared a long memo uh, urging that this is why we still occupied Berlin. When we occupied a segment of Berlin, we had complete authority for every activity that took place in our sector. And I wrote a memo. I said, you should take back... And, uh, I've forgotten which Nazi war criminal. It might have been the Romanian Bishop Trifa. I say, cut orders, and we'll fly him to Berlin tomorrow. We had full and complete authority to do it. The German ambassador went nuts. Our, our ambassador to Germany went nuts. The State Department went crazy. Who was this wild man, Neil Schur, making these crazy suggestions? The, the Germans will, uh, you know, it'll be very offensive to them. So that got shot down. I recommended that they uh, that we have stricter 
controls over Germans coming into the United States, make them uh, go through a whole visa process. Uh, the German industry didn't like it. German travel agents didn't like it. So that got uh, shunted aside. Trust me, if our government wants to put pressure on a friendly nation, they know how to do it. I'll give you an example. During the first Gulf War, when scuds were flying into Israel, we sent over high-ranking State Department officials to, uh, to Israel and said, we do not want you to retaliate. You'd better not retaliate because that would affect the coalition they had put together uh, during the first Iraq war. Don't do it. And they said, you know, we're, at, we're telling you to do this as an ally, but there's something else. Should you, in fact, retaliate, we will stop giving our, uh, our jet pilots the various codes, friend or foe codes, uh, f- about Israeli airplanes. And if they did that, Israeli planes would have been shot down. The point is very simple. If we want to exert pressure, even on our closest ally, we do it and we know how to do it. Our State Department simply did not want to do it. So let me ask the question. You were compassing both as a Nazi hunter, well, as a prosecutor Nazi war criminal, also head of APAC. The State Department for years, I, I hope it's better today, has always had an agenda which sometimes was odds with the President of the United States, had a very... Uh, much more anti-Israel agenda, more pro-Palestinian agenda than we like to acknowledge. No, 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 there's no question about it, and a lot of that stems from senior uh, uh, functionaries in the Department of State, where for years there were there were built up an a, a, you know an anti-Israel uh, attitude. It's there, and some of it, you know, it's also in law enforcement. This notion of dual loyalties. Uh, you know, that, that's a dirty little secret that uh, fills the, the holes of not just the State Department. I gotta tell you, I had experience in representing a client in front of the CIA. Is that the Adam Shiralsky who sued Adam the Adam Shiralsky, exactly. He, he was an Orthodox Jew. He sued the CIA because they passed over him because he was Orthodox and Jewish. I think he lost the case, unfortunately. But well, I, 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 that's right, Jeb. I, I represented him before he filed the lawsuit. In fact, I had, a, uh, had negotiated what I thought was a very good settlement for him, where he would get back pay and other things, but he, he, he didn't want to do what he wanted to sue, uh, and, and the case uh, didn't go anywhere. But the point was that during my investigation, when I was, when I was handling his matter, we uncovered emails and internal memos within the uh, CIA where, in which that were blatantly anti-Semitic, where they uh, accused him of dual loyalties because uh, his father bought Israel bonds, where he, uh, Adam, I think as a high schooler, took a, a UJA or, 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 or a trip to Israel. And I, think, trip to Israel and I think he spoke you know. Hebrew. Was, that was also an offense, if I remember correctly. Yeah, he went to Hebrew school. Spoke some Hebrew. When Terrible crime. Uh, I mean, there was stuff there that was was horrible. And George Tenet was the head of the CIA, and 
uh, he was not happy in what we were saying about it. In fact, there was a piece on 60 Minutes where they interviewed Adam and, and myself. Uh, and it's, it was in the, F, the, the FBI the same way, absolutely the same way. There is this dirty little secret where they accuse uh, uh, loyal Americans who support Israel and are Jewish of having dual loyalties. Now, I've got to tell you that the, uh, the Pollard case did not help. It hurt. It that, is, uh, that was a debacle. Uh, you know, that's, that, that's a whole different uh, situation. Uh, the, uh, but it, it also reared its head when two uh, APAC employees were charged with, uh, uh, with espionage and, uh, I actually was interviewed by the, the CIA. I was no longer at APAC, but the FBI called me, uh, not surprisingly, as a former, you know, senior DOJ uh, official and as the head of APAC. Again, I was not surprised when they contacted me. Uh, and it was pretty clear from my interview that these people had no idea how APAC uh, handled the matter or how APAC operated. Uh, I think... Uh, I think the apex or was somebody, there was a conversation, was it an open space, and somebody said something which they construed to be giving information? Is that? Well, I mean, it, what it was was a sting operation. Someone who was under investigation by the FBI, uh, I guess trying to help himself, which didn't happen because I think he went to jail, approached the APAC people and said, listen, uh, we got some uh, secret information we'd like you to, to pass it along to the Israelis and maybe to the press. I forgot the details, uh, because it could save Israeli lives in, in the Middle East. And that's what led to it. Uh, and uh, and APAC got, got caught in this, uh, in this sting operation. I mean, frankly, if I had still been the head of APAC and one of my uh, people came to me and said, look, uh, we were just approached about this confidential information, and I think, uh, you know, we, we ought to do something about it. You know, as a former Justice Department official, my antennas would have gone straight up. Uh, you know, something's wrong. Why are they contacting APAC? They could do all sorts of things themselves. And, and frankly, what I would have done was I would have called up my old boss, who then was the head of the FBI, a guy named uh, Robert Mueller. Uh, who was my boss for about three years at the Justice Department, and I would have said, hey, Bob, uh, someone is passing around uh, secret information. You ought to check into it. And that would have blown the whole sting operation. But, uh, Are you still in touch with Bob Mueller? Well, no, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm friends with him. I mean, he was my boss for three years. Uh -huh. And he, uh, uh, you know, I was in contact with him actually when I was at APAC over a separate matter. Uh, this goes into another uh, aspect of my career justice, which was interesting, and that was that uh, we had filed a prosecution against uh, a uh, someone from Hungary uh, who lived in New Jersey, who during the war was a uh, a nasty uh, anti-Semitic propagandist for the the, the pro-fascist, pro-Nazi. Hungarian regime, and he wrote, you know, horrible stuff at a time when that propaganda influenced the people, 
And we all know what happened to uh, to the Jews in Hungary, particularly late in the war, when they were, uh, uh, you know... They were deported to Auschwitz. To Auschwitz, yeah, with Eichmann actually personally overseeing it. But it turns out that the daughter of the guy we prosecuted was an FBI agent attached to the New York field office. And her boyfriend at the time, later her husband, was also in that office, a supervisory attorney, and they wrote a memo, a formal memo that they passed along to the high-ranking officials in the FBI and to the Justice Department, saying that our case was based on communist propaganda, that the evidence was uh, flimsy, not right? reliable. I mean, it was pure unadulterated BS. In fact, the FBI didn't even contact my office, the office, the person preparing it, who was the lover at the time of the daughter of the person we were going after. And this was in the middle of the case. The case was brought by the Justice Department. The FBI is part of the Justice Department. And they write a memo, an unsubstantiated piece of junk that they knew that we'd have to disclose, that would have to be revealed in court, and would cause problems. When I saw that, I hit the roof. And we actually, uh, uh, along with the FBI, internally conducted an investigation. I interrogated the the, the FBI agent, etc. And they, in my view, those people should have been fired immediately. And it languished. And finally, when I I had left the government, the investigation at the Bureau was still going on. I I wrote a long letter to uh, Louis Free, who was the head of the FBI, and I said, this is open and shut. These guys have to be fired. Uh, They delayed and they delayed until Free left. uh, And then I found out that they had slapped these people on the wrist. That was basically it. And I had written a letter once Mueller became the FBI, and I was still at uh, APAC. I wrote a, middle, uh, a letter to him saying, you ought to take another look at it. And he wrote me back uh, rather quickly, uh, a friendly letter saying, listen, I can't. This has been a decision, et cetera. Uh, so uh, they, got away with, they got away with it. They got away with it. you know. But I say this because this underscores in law enforcement and within the intelligence community, there has been, and probably I'm sure still is, this underlying suspicion, dual loyalties. And now we see this in Congress. I mean, my goodness. Right, you see with the squad. It's gotten worse. But let me. But the FBI. Uh, we have a few moments left. Uh, Neil M. Sure is yeah. our guest, a prominent American lawyer, as you heard. He was former head of the Department of, of Justice, dealing with Nazi war criminals. Former head of APAC. But the FBI. We. I actually told this to John Kerry when after he ran for president of the United States. There were a case about ninety-one Sephardic interpreters who wanted to translate Arabic for the FBI because we right. had a shortage of Arabic inter- interpreters at that time, and mm-hmm. they were rejected on the theory that a Jew who interprets Arabic documents is going to be more loyal to Israel than to America, while we didn't have the same suspicion about hiring even radical Islamists to, to do that. And yeah, of course. And the FBI has dealt with that. What did Kerry say? 
So he said he was going to investigate it. Then yeah, <laughs> I spoke yeah, to Jerry yeah, Nadler. Yeah, I spoke yeah, to yeah. other people. They promised me investigations. I never heard anything again. But it's 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 wrong that you would discriminate against Americans because they're going to be more loyal Absolutely. to Israel. Outrageous. But it wasn't. And you mentioned before Adam Swarovski. There were other cases. There was a guy named I got his first name Tenenbaum. They raided Tenenbaum his, out in Detroit, on Shabbos. Yeah. Uh, where they was again accused of being, you know, giving secrets to Israel. He was exonerated by the FBI, but not by the army. I think it's still going on today. We had him. Yeah, there's up. something going on. You know, and, and there is spillover. Look what's happening now. We have this, you know, the the anti-Semitism today. According to the so-called organized Jewish community, has not been this bad since the 30s in Germany. Uh, and a lot of it has to do with dual loyalties. We saw this during the recent uh, Israel-Hamas conflict. We've seen it before. You have the squad up in Capitol Hill who go around talking about uh, uh, undue Jewish influence and dual loyalties. That is out there, and that has spilled over to the uh, to campuses and in Congress. And, uh, and you know, what what has the Jewish community's response been? And in my view, it's been overly timid, uh, with, with few exceptions. I mean, we have the organized Jewish community in response to this almost unprecedented spate of anti-Semitism, physical violence, murders, uh, everything you can imagine, uh, has been to, to sort of catalog and let us know every day in emails that there's been another incident. Well... We don't need or we don't need organizations to tell us that. Look out the window, you know it. And the response has been angry emails, angry tweets. I think it's time for for the Jewish community to realize that whatever we've been doing to fight anti-Semitism, uh, you know, trying to dialogue with the anti-Semites, uh, trying to uh, convince them that Israel is not an apartheid state, to try to persuade them that Israel is not committing on a daily basis war crimes. That's not, that hasn't worked, and it never will work. You cannot convince these people. And, we, and, should be and working, we should be working to get them out of office, put Jewish money, uh, Jewish time, Jewish effort. A hundred, you are a hundred And we're not, even in New York, you had Elliot Engel left. Now, true, he ran one of the worst campaigns in New York history. I, I won't deny that. But you have somebody who's now part of the squad, Jamal, who, uh, again, you know, we could have done better. You know, uh, I, I, I think, I, I've got to say, and, and, and I don't say this Jamal with Bauman, any pleasure, uh -huh. I think the, the die was set back in 2015 when APEC quite properly and quite aggressively fought the Iran deal. They, they, they pushed forward and they argued that this was an existential threat to Israel. Uh, you know, uh, Bibi came over and addressed Congress, which created in and of itself some problems. But put that aside. APEC put a, a, an all-hands-on-deck fight, and that was exactly the right thing to do, but they lost. And the problem is, after they lost, they did not make any of the people who supported the deal, who opposed APEC, who opposed Israel, they did not make uh, have any consequences. Why? They Why did they? They got away with it. In fact... APAC raised money for some of those people. Why? And well, I don't know because they want to. 
They, they wanted to be bipartisan. They want to show they could deal with these people so they can have access. That's the key term. Everybody wants access. The question is, and they want access to Democrats and Republicans. Of course you do. The problem is, what do you do with that access? And I'm afraid the message that was delivered was that you can fight Israel, you can fight the pro-Israel uh, lobby, right? community lobby, even on an existential issue, and get away with it and pay no price. But now you don't I hear think, them challenge anybody. You know, they've been quiet. Has APAC changed? Is it, uh, I, you know, I don't, I don't, you know, I, I, I'm not involved with them anymore. I, I, I read, I see. But I think what, what the pro-Israel community can do, and APAC is, is the leader of the pack, that they should find somebody. The problem is in Congress. Let me get back to this issue of anti-Semitism. You can have all the demonstrations in Washington and every city across the country where there's been anti-Semitism. You can have them day in and day out. It's not going to change the minds of, uh, of the anti-Semites. I mean, if we haven't learned that from history, we're foolish. Exactly. If we have a club that's criminalized against Jews, they bought the club, right? Well, it, yeah, but I think in terms of, you know, we had, I was in Washington. I remember quite well in the, in the late 80s, the massive demonstrations for Soviet Jewry, and it worked. There was legislation passed. And, in fact, it, it, Jews were able to get out. But the difference was, back then, Congress was on our side both Republicans and Democrats. We were pushing an open door, and it worked. It was terrific. That's not the case now. Congress is part of the problem. On the one hand, you have the far right, you know, the neo-Nazis. And on the other hand, you have the, the hard-left progressives, the squad, which is growing, and they are blatantly anti-Semitic. And then you have the, the mainstream in the Democratic Party, who are not taking them on. I think the pro-Israel community, as they did uh, years ago, there was a senator from Illinois, Charles Percy, popular senator, who was very hostile to Israel. APAC and the pro-Israel community went behind Paul Simon, who challenged Percy, and they were open about it, they were brazen about it, and it worked. I think what needs to be done is to target some of these people, including, I hate to say it, some of the hard-left Jewish members of Congress who are hostile to Israel, and people know who they are, and they, uh, APAC ought to make, make them targets. You might not win, but you should make them targets and find people to challenge Correct them. Correct me if I'm wrong. Are they, is APAC challenging anyone today? I, I don't know. I don't hear about the challenging AOC I, I, or I don't know. Ilan Ohm or any of them. APAC, APAC uh, you know, as an organization, doesn't do that. But they're people, they, the grassroots uh, contributors, they do it. They have to do it. The only way to fight anti-Semitism is to, to identify, you know who the enemies are, you know who the people are, and find the pressure points that work. And, and, and the, the old saying of naming and shaming them, that doesn't work. It never has worked, and it never will work. You have These to show there has care. to be a price. There has to be a price to what they're doing. If there's 100%. no price, they will continue. And that's the and, and we have our fights you know, within the community. I mean, uh, the ZOA under Mort Klein, they were attacked in Boston. They, 
people, you know, from the left tried to throw them out of, of that umbrella group. He's about the Congress it of Presidents, work. okay. Yeah. They have to, you know, the Jews should exert the pressure that they're entitled to exert politically and economically, all of which is legitimate, all of which... And it's American and Democratic. We're out of time. Neil okay. M. Sheriff, prominent attorney, former head of the Office of Special Investigations who prosecuted Nazi war criminals, former head of executive director of APAC, American Israel Public Affairs Committee. Thank you for joining us. And we're going to be right back. Don't go away. Stay tuned. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Talkline Radio and TV with Zeb Brenner is just phenomenal. Everybody concerned about the Jewish community should listen and watch. He has the best guests. He asks the most interesting questions. He's always so well prepared. It's talk radio and television from a Jewish point of view at its very best. To advertise on the Talkline Network and Talkline's email and social media blasts reaching over 70,000 people, please call 212-769-1925, extension 100. That's 212-769-1925, extension 100. Or email info at talklinenetwork.com. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Thanks for listening. For continuous Jewish programs, talklinenetwork.com or our 24-hour-a-day listen line at 641-741-0389. For past shows, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, YouTube, Instagram, and all major podcast platforms or jewishpodcast.org. Thanks for listening to the TalkLineNetwork.com. TalkLine Network Radio, America's longest-running Jewish broadcast network, the voice of the Jewish community.